Hello, Kate Tone slash Hemetsaraki. How are you? Hello, Luke Butler. How are you? <laughs> I'm well, thank you. That's good. What's been happening? How's life, business in your world? Life is good. Um, I am reticent to say it does feel like that slow crawl to Christmas. Mm. Um, or maybe not slow crawl, fr- quite frenetic, actually. There's a bit of a flurry of activity at the moment, but... It certainly feels a little bit, little bit groundhog day, a little bit grindy. Really? Not in a bad way. Just a lot going on. Right. Oh, that's good. It's better than the opposite. We're seeing the same thing. Like it's picked up again. Um, last couple of months have been really, really busy, particularly coming out of the end of the financial year. But um, it feels like people are not taking the foot off the gas at all leading into Christmas, which is. Good. We're talking about it internally today, actually. It also, it, always, it also appears that there's a lot of talent all looking to move. It's not just on the employer side and people looking to appoint roles, but normally you get either one or both the talent market and the employer market slowing down and, and sort of, you know, we're, we're in December almost. Um, it can wait till next year, but it's uh, it's certainly not the case. Where's most of your time being spent? Is it on immigration stuff like we're talking about or the people stuff? I mean, always in my world, it's a bit of everything. Uh, talent will continue to be front of mind for everyone. And I agree with your assessment that I certainly don't see businesses, not my clients at least, taking their foot off the gas at all. If anything, it does feel like people are really ramping up. And I also agree with you that talent are really savvy about what they're looking for and what they want. And I think perhaps, you know, I don't know if this is a post-COVID thing, but coming out of, you know, this this like reawakening or opening or whatever it is to really know how to go after what they want. Um, So I agree that that's creating a bit of movement, but I think, yeah, for clients of mine at the moment, what's taking up time is talent always uh, a strong focus on training as clients of mine kind of boost up their workforces to their peak levels. Not training people would be one of the silliest things to do. And what is definitely taking up my time is some of this stuff that we are going to talk about today. And, you know, it's not just the immigration stuff. It's all things compliant. So, you know, it's spending a bit of time at the Fair Work Commission, defending unfair dismissals and general protections claim, responding to notice to produce from Fair Work Ombudsman offices and um, working on all things immigration as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, I've been... Like I said, we're talking about it internally this morning and trying to understand what it is that's maybe driving it, whether it is, you know, last summer coming into December, it was still a case of people just being absolutely frantic in their hiring internally and running their business and those kinds of things. And yeah, I don't know if it's a hangover of COVID and people have in different mental states now as a result of the experience of the last couple of years and just ploughing through because they're a bit um, battle-hardened or if it's economics that are driving it in terms of people looking to improve, you know, take on a bigger role that's paying more, whatever it might be. I don't know. Lots of things at play. Um, I should mention Mike is still very much knee-deep in um, a large bit of work with government, which is why he's been missing from the last couple of podcasts. So we hope you are officially our second um, guest podcast host, which is awesome. So thank you for agreeing to do it. Um, Thank you, Mike, for letting me fill your shoes, your very big shoes. He has big shoes. He'll be back soon. But um, today's topic is one very close to your heart. So do you want to... um, maybe give us a bit of insight as to the guests that are coming on today and and a bit of maybe the reasoning behind why they're joining us? Yeah, absolutely. Well, firstly, thank you for having me as a co-host. Happy to be a co-pilot with you. Today, we were very lucky to talk to Lillian Azuria and Ron Kessels from Azuria Lawyers. I am very privileged, very lucky to have known and worked with Azuria Lawyers since 2015. Incredible lawyers who only operate for businesses. They do a lot of work in the hospitality space and they are immigration specialists. So 
that's the only area of law that they practice in. And I've worked with lots of different types of lawyers throughout my career, lots of different specialists, mainly in that employment space. And they are absolutely exceptional at what they do and really good people who understand the challenges of operating a business and who are deeply connected with um, getting great talent and bringing great talent, international talent, into Australia. So excited to talk to them because I think, one, they're specialists at what they do, but also, two, this space is incredibly ever-evolving, as has the Fair Workspace been this year, and keeping up with, you know, what's expected and what's required, I know is a challenge for a lot of my clients and is one of those things that until someone can sort of lay it out for you of the things you should be thinking about and, and where your attention should be going, it can seem a little bit daunting or overwhelming. So Azuria definitely have always held me in good stead to not get to that overwhelming or daunting space. Yeah, nice. I mean, it's if you operate a hospitality business, there's a very high likelihood that you have uh, been involved with an immigration process at one point or another or, or thought about it if you haven't actually pulled the trigger. So mm. um, it'll be good to hear what they have to say. So thanks for arranging them. Let's jump into the chat. Ron and Lillian, welcome to the Back of House podcast. Thank you for joining us. And um, we would have known from the introduction already, but Kate Tones is joining us for her first Kate Hemetsaraki. Kate Hemetsaraki, sorry. I'm stuck in the past. I can't move <laughs> past it. The name's too famous, to be honest. So we might just kick off, um, Ron or Lillian, you could choose who goes first, just to let us know a little bit about yourselves, I guess, on a personal and professional level as to how you ended up where you are today and then a bit of oversight on the business as to, you know, what you do on a daily basis and, and why you're here talking to us about this topic. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you for having us. I've been working in immigration for my whole career since pretty much I graduated from university, which is more than 20 years ago. And funnily enough, I actually started my first job working for Ron as a graduate lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> which is a long time ago. So Ron and I have worked on and off together for many, many years over the years. So Ron took off and did something else, which he could talk to. But our, our practice is very much focused on corporate immigration law, meaning that we mainly act for employers and companies and help with their visa needs. Um, we have a big entertainment visa section, so we do a lot in the film and entertainment industry. Um, but we work across all different industries, so be it in insurance or te technology, but a big part of the work of what we do is in hospitality hospitality, working with businesses across Australia, um, helping them with their visa needs and migration needs. Um, and I guess when we talk about the business, we I personally love what I do. We love what we do. And we're very, very um, happy with the firm that we have, the, employ the lawyers that we employ and how the business runs. And we work, you know, very closely with our clients, looking at not just their visa needs, but sort of looking at compliance. And we'll talk about that today and what we're seeing with the government, uh, but looking at the bigger picture for businesses when it comes to immigration law. Thanks. And uh, look, thanks so much for having us. Um, I'm Ron. Uh, I've uh, started my, I've been in immigration about 25 years as a lawyer. I started my professional career in, as a criminal lawyer, actually and then did refugee law for a number of years and then started working um, more with businesses and now we're pretty much exclusively for companies and uh, CEOs, etc. cetera. Uh, we, I, uh, for a while, went to the United States and I worked in New York uh, for another firm and uh, where I was working on some pretty big sort of global engagements and knowledge for the firm and then came back and luckily... Uh, Lillian invited me back into the firm and we've been together for the last uh, five years uh, growing out for Juria Lawyers. And while we were overseas, well, I was overseas and working with uh, some of the bigger employers there, we realised that technology was a, of growing importance to a lot of clients uh, and that current systems kind of weren't really dealing with managing sort of visa populations. So we also have another business called Mobility Desk, uh, which is a, a platform that we can talk a little bit about, but it sort of helps to manage visas and migration. And so that's our other sort of arm to this as well. Very happy to be here and happy to chat about current immigration issues. I think that's an awesome segue, perhaps just as a bit of a, a kickoff to this topic, if you could 
give us a bit of a summary of what is the current context around immigration and what should businesses be aware of that is currently going on in this immigration space? Definitely a lot has happened and you probably have heard a lot in the media. Um, the Minister for Immigration is immigration is a hot topic. It, it typically has been, but what we have seen since the Labor government has come in quite a lot of marked changes and, and they can probably be summarised in a number of ways. The first one is that we have seen a clear recognition from the government that we are competing uh, for migrants with other countries. So before it used to be we were very selective, but now other countries are trying to attract migrants and skilled workers and Australia is very aware of that. So they have tried to um, open up our, our view of that migrants are part, a very important part of the economy in the country and that we have to welcome them and try and attract them and but that doesn't go with the Labour government it does mean that there's much more union involvement so the unions do have a say and we can talk to that a little bit and how that affects the hospitality industry but the other part of that is that the government has now introduced this new pathway to permanent residence whereas before only certain people could get permanent residence on sponsored work, work visas now everybody from the 25th of um, November the 25th of this month will be able to access permanent residence and they have changed the rules so that you only have to have done two two years of employment in Australia instead of three with your sponsor. So that's a big clear indication of um, the government trying to retain people in Australia and not lose them to other countries. The other thing that we are seeing now is at the end of that era of COVID concessions. So the end of the 408 visa, which was instrumental in the hospitality industry of the last couple of years, that's going um, and it's, very, uh, it's still available. It's very limited right now. But we've also lost certain concessions such as student visa work hours are now reduced again and then the work in holiday maker um, concessions in terms of the six month employment limitation that's all gone as well. The other big change that we're seeing is, and this really does affect the hospitality industry, is the increase of the minimum salary for sponsored work visas or so the TSS work visa. That's increased already to $70,000, which means it does affect a lot of the hospitality businesses because the market rate for that role also has to be at $70,000. And we can talk a little bit about that, about that as well. And then the other major thing that we're seeing is much more increase in compliance activity from the Department of Home Affairs and what we call the Immigration Police, which is the Australian Border Force. So we are seeing much more, uh, many more resources put into that section that deals with compliance and monitoring companies and sponsors. So not much then. <laughs> yeah, there's so many different ways you could move on from there because it raises a lot of questions. But one thing that came to mind, and this may be completely anecdotal or you may have data on it, so I'm not sure, but when you say the government has realised we're competing with other countries for talent, who are we competing with? And I'm linked this back to like an international recruitment program that a lot of hospitality businesses have, you know, implemented some pretty vocally over the last 12 months. But w who are we competing with in terms of the countries that are trying to take the talent that we could have access to? And do you also have any insight as to where the main number of people are coming to us from? Like, is there a, any sort of consistency in the country of origin? Because that may also help businesses target their recruitment to specific parts of the world as well. So sort of historically, look, the big, um, start with your second question first. So, you know, historically, the big countries where we take talent from, where Australia takes people from, uh, are still sort of, you know, the UK, increasingly from the US in relation to sort of tech, quite a lot of people still coming from China in relation to student visas. So, you know, the, 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 the sort of areas that are over the last five, 10 years we've drawn people from are still those. But they, the department does publish statistics. And the thing that's always amazing is just like the, the, the range of countries where people are coming from. They come from everywhere, effectively. But those countries where we, for hospitality, it tends to be those countries with which we have working holiday maker agreements where people can sort of come in and, and work easily and where we're targeting students. So that, that tends to be the big draw unless you are specifically going out to recruit for, for example, for chefs, where we've seen sort of recruitment a lot from the Middle East. Uh, out of the big hotels, uh, a lot of recruitment there, recruitment out of Mexico, some recruitment, um, particularly in the hotel chains, uh, traditionally out of Europe. So they're looking for a particular level of sort of, you know, people from there with training from in European, um, with European backgrounds. So that, that tends to be the main, you know, places we draw from. 
As to who we're competing with, well, it depends very much on the sector. So, you know, tech, we're competing with everywhere where there's tech, you know, in the sciences, we're competing with everybody. In hospitality, whichever countries are sort of where their sort of hospitality industries are booming and they're, and they're looking for talent. Uh, a lot of people still end up in the US. A lot of people are still, um, you know, traveling to, are going to Europe. Uh, so, so that tends to be the flow, but it's pretty much these days from anywhere to anywhere. I mean, I certainly see this in the work that I do, and I think you, you sort of alluded to it just then where when we can get people on working holiday visas or student visas, particularly in hospitality, that's almost like a try before you buy as a pathway to TSS, temporary skills shortage visas or 482s. Do you even now this day come across hospitality businesses who only have Australian New Zealand citizens or who have no temporary workforce? Is that even a thing? I don't think so. I think, well, the businesses that we deal with sponsor people, otherwise we wouldn't be dealing with them, right? But anecdotally, like, um, I think most hospitality businesses would have an overseas temporary visa holder working for them, whether it's a student visa, a working holiday maker, or some sort of temporary visa, that's a given. I think it would be very rare to have all Australian employees. Yeah, I can't imagine walking into a restaurant or a pub anywhere <laughs> in Australia uh, and not you're not coming across a visa holder of some type. And that's probably part of the success of the hospitality industry in Australia, that it's attracted people from all over the world with different skills and different cuisines and different backgrounds. That's part of, you know, our success, isn't it? I think it is one of those things, though, perhaps if we ignore TSS for just a second and we talk about um, student visas and working holiday visas, I don't know if everyone is aware of Vivo checks and the whole record-keeping requirement around a, a workforce who has a visa. Perhaps you can shed some light on that for us. There's a sort of a legal... There's obviously it's all driven by a legal requirement uh, and then there's some sort of very practical things. But the, the legal requirement is that it's an offence for an employer to employ a visa holder either in a way that is in breach of their visa condition. So if you have a student and they're working more hours than they're allowed or you have a working holiday maker who works more than six months for you or if you employ someone without a visa at all, which is pretty rare, right? So it tends to be a breach of a visa condition. It's actually a criminal offence for the employer. Uh, and so companies uh, can be convicted the directors of those companies uh, can be convicted. And in addition to that, it can lead to pretty serious consequences in relation to your sponsorship. Um, so, and in, in the worst possible scenarios, it can end up with imprisonment. What the law says is that how it's a defence to that, because uh, they realise it can happen, if you have made reasonable checks at reasonable times to make sure that all your employees have the, the right work rights and that they're sticking to them. And the reasonable checks at reasonable times can be done in a number of ways, but two ways that are stipulated under the Act as being sort of a given and accepted are that you do a Vivo check uh, or that you uh, hire someone else to do, you outsource it and you get someone else to do your Vivo checking. So the way to avoid any issues at all is to make sure that Vivo checks are always done at the point of employment. And then if you discover that the person is on a visa, to make sure that then the, the Vivo checks are done regularly after that, every few months or so, and to also keep very good records in relation to start dates, student visa hours, and, and those things, because that's that's where you can run into compliance problems. So. Are Vivo checks mandatory? No, but effectively, yes, because there isn't really any other way to sort of guarantee that you know that the person has the right work rights or outsourcing it. But that the person you're outsourcing it to is going to be running Vivo checks as well. Now, we also know what we know what Vivo stands for, but maybe just let us know that as well. We have to look it up because we just use it all the time. Visa in title. Visa entitlement verification online, yes. 
And and look, there's no prescribed period as to how often those vivo checks should be done. But in hospitality, we tell clients because it's such a transit, a lot of people are on temporary visas, we'd recommend at least every three months. But as Ron mentioned, um, there's a lot of software programs that can do it automatically. You can set a calendar and they do it automatically for you. And if it's done manually by a business, it's a, it's a matter of minutes. So there's no really excuse to it. And it's free. There's no cost or anything like that. If you we take it back a step, because it's not a process that I've personally ever been in. I've been through with businesses that have had it done before. But if someone's listening to this and they're like, sponsoring someone sounds great, I'm not set up to do it. How exhaustive is that process to actually become eligible to take on a sponsorship? And then I guess if looking at the hospitality landscape and the job types that are typically permitted or easier to get through than others... Is sponsoring relevant to most hospitality business in relation to the approved job types that you would be able to sponsor? And then a third part to that two-part question, how are timelines, just looking at the current economic, current, um, sorry, context around immigration, is it fast at the moment? We hear some businesses finding it really difficult to get sponsorships through, others finding it a lot easier. Where, where, Where does the disparity come between someone who has a good time around it and someone who doesn't? We had a look at how many sponsors there are in Australia that are active, meaning that they're actively sponsoring people, not that they just have a sponsorship license approved. And at the moment, there's about 21,000 companies that are approved as sponsors. So that gives you an idea. In hospitality, it's your chefs, cooks, restaurant managers. And then it, there's some variances with that depending on labour agreements. You could have trade waiters, you could have some other occupations, but they're the main ones that we see in, in the venues, right? And then there's obviously the back off in the, in the office, there's marketing and all of those other roles, but they're the main ones that you see in venues. In terms of how difficult or how hard it is, it, really the criteria to become an approved sponsor is not, not that onerous. And it's and it, once it's approved, it's approved for a five-year period and it's for an unlimited number of visas. So you do it as a one-off for five years. But where their work comes into it is really is in compliance and making sure that companies are maintaining the sponsorship obligations. And again, if things are done properly and records are kept and they're well, the HR department's well managed or, or a small business is managing their records properly, it's, it's not too onerous either because the things such as make sure that you keep records, make sure you know, that you're not, you know, there are a lot of them tying with the fair work. So it's about the hours work and whether you are paying them for overtime or whether the award requirements are being met. So it's, it's, if you do it properly from day one, it is not, it's not such a, such a big problem. The problem becomes when sponsors don't do things properly from day one, where they're employing uh, people to work 60 hours a week, they, you know, week in and week out, where they're breaching other areas of the legislation, not just immigration, or where they are sponsoring people in the wrong occupation. So if things are done properly from day one, it's not an onerous thing um, to do. But it is costly. That's the thing. It, it does cost money to businesses. And there are some costs that can be passed on to employees. And we could talk a little bit about that because the hospitality industry does differ a little bit with other industries on how that works. But there are some costs that can be passed on to some employees and other costs cannot be passed on and they cannot be clawed back. So it does become an issue of cost. Um, and then the the other question I think that you had is... It was about ocup- occupation. Oh, how long? How long it's taken. At the moment, um, we had a huge backlog because of COVID and, and what was happening. But at the moment, they're fairly quick. If everything is in order with the sponsor and there's no adverse information, maybe about three to six weeks from lodgement. That's for normal sponsors. Um, if you're an accredited sponsor, which we can, again, touch on a bit, it's the VIP process. It's done within a few days at the moment. Um, it just depends on what type of sponsorship you're set up with. And we should just probably explain that um, when we're talking about sponsorship here, we're talking about the actual uh, sort of like approval to be a sponsor. Uh, So that's what's taking that time. But each visa application under that sponsorship then needs to be lodged and processed. And times there can really vary quite a lot, particularly depending on where the person's coming from, uh, whether labour market testing is a requirement for that particular person or that role. And, you know, whether there's extra health checks and things like that that need to be done. So processing time of the individual, um, it it tends to be longer than that. And we can talk a bit more about the times. But to go back to your question also, I think it was about the occupations. 
Mm. So broadly, the way that it works is that for TSS visas, which are your sponsored work visa that we're talking about, so we should maybe, for people that are kind of a bit newer to it, broadly we look at the world uh, as three groups, right? Australian citizens and permanent residents and New Zealanders in one group. Uh, temporary visa holders that don't need sponsorship, so students, uh, working holiday makers, recent graduates who can get visas for up to two, in some cases, three years where they can work, uh, and then sponsored visas. And sponsored visas can be either, there are various types, but typically it's the uh, what they call the TSS visa, which is for anything up to four years, depending on the occupation, or there are in some cases training visas that can be sponsored as well. So that's kind of how the world, and, and what Lillian's talking about here is sponsorship for those TSS visas, which are your longer term work visas. They work on an occupations list. So for the hospitality industry, uh, occupations that are on the standard lists uh, are things like cooks um, who can get up to two years uh, and restaurant managers for up to two years, uh, chefs for four years. The things that are kind of missing are waiters, uh, for example, back of house staff that are kind of like, you know, working in the kitchen, uh, in your sort of in, in the hotel industry, then the, anything sort of mid-management level tends to not be on any list. And for those people, uh, there's an additional process if you want to be able to sponsor those, and that's going through one of the labour agreements that the industry has set up, either the premium dining agreement or an accommodation and hospitality agreement where the industry has negotiated with the government special arrangements for employers in hospitality or accommodation to be able to sponsor those additional occupations. And that's another process, a separate process that you would need to go through. So, but cooks, restaurant managers, chefs, they can all, all come in under the standard program. What if you, and this happened with a client of ours recently, large national employer, but they fit in uh, outside of the elite labor agreements that you've referenced. If you do want to respond to someone that's not on the approved titles list, do you have any recourse at all? Is there a process that you can follow if there's no labor agreement that they can reference in that process? Yeah, there, there is a process for a company to be approved for its own labour agreement specific to it, but it's a long and arduous process, at least kind of nine, you're looking at nine to 18 months, there's about 500 applications in the queue, and it involves union uh, consultation, not approval, but it, you, you need to get the unions involved, and that tends to turn off a lot of people unless it's a unionised sort of worksite already. So there is a process. It's generally not one that any smaller employer is going to be interested in doing, a bigger employer's potentially. But we don't know where the government's going with this at the moment. The indications are that they're sort of looking at a three-tier structure for sponsored for TSS visas. And one will be sort of a light touch, everyone over $98,000 a year, your standard program, which for most hospitality um, occupations, 70 to 98K, and then some sort of process for occupations and salaries below 70K, where that's the market rate. And what we're thinking it's going to happen will be sort of, they'll focus on those industry agreements where they can involve the unions and others to, to sort of negotiate what the agreement will look like. But, but that's sort of in the in the pipeline but it, and it's being sort of hinted at but that it hasn't happened yet yes it does i mean it probably hold well it holds negative outcomes for the employer and the employee really because i mean the instance that i'm thinking about we had a very very strong leader who was ready to take the next step in their career but the fact that they couldn't be sponsored into that role meant that they couldn't do it and then for the employer they miss out on being able to employ that person into a you know an impactful role in their organization because it's, uh, it's just not allowed unless you want to just give them a job title that is not relevant to the role that they're doing and then... Yeah, that's not recommended and lots of trouble down the road. <laughs> no, I'm not suggesting for the record. Or, or pay them an exorbitant amount of money. Look, it, it is an issue and we do come across situations where there's kind of like no pathway, you know, and it depends. For example, uh, if you're in a regional area, then there are additional pathways that kind of could open there. But yeah, you do come across, it's pretty rare that there's kind of like, you know, a very high level position paid well that there's no avenue for, but it, but it is possible because of the way the lists operate. If we go back to this sort of 
best optimising our temporary workforce, I think it's worth talking about ways that we most effectively manage, particularly people on student visas or working holiday visas, appreciating that not all employers will have, you know, multiple locations or multiple sites. But I think if we think about how to make the most of or get the best out of that talent for one employer, can you give us some tips and tricks, things that we might think about, but then also still remain compliant? I think it's Probably work and holiday maker program is very attractive for hospitality because there's no costs involved to an employer, but it is limited to the six months in the one location. If you only have one venue, you only get that employee for six months. The work and holiday program has expanded quite a lot with another, a lot of countries. So even Papua New Guinea now I think has a program. So lots it's constantly changing and it's always worth looking at the, the department's website to see what countries are, are participating in the program. And there is also some expansion with certain countries. So for example, the UK, the age has increased to 35 years old instead of 31 for work and holiday makers, and they can get three consecutive work and holiday maker visas from next year. So there's some countries that have extra concessions. So, But I guess the, the issue with that is that you have to have the person on the ground and, and available to work but policing the six months is really really important because if if the employer goes over six months then it's going to be a big issue with students it's obviously keeping very very close and careful records of the hours that they're working and making sure that if the student says hey i can work full-time next week because my college is on holidays and the student visa allows full-time employment when their their school or the university or the institution whatever they're studying is on holidays you actually as an employer should be checking that that actually is correct and that the students not just telling you that so they can make a bit of extra money so working um you know they, they with student visas they look at the fortnight the 48 hours the fortnight they look at it from a monday that's how it's calculated so some sort of system or payroll some sort of tracking system where employers can make sure that the person's not working over time and then coming into the new year for some regional regional venues um, there may be other programs that would be quite attractive such as the pacific and the palm scheme that you're hearing about in the news we don't really know exactly how the new lottery will work because they've just released legislation about a lottery system where people in those pacific countries can enter a lottery to be able to get a visa to come to australia um, and it's trying to attract people into regional areas so it may be that some of those workers will be able to work in hospitality and for some of our bigger clients who are in regional areas they're already starting to use some of those programs to leverage of what, whatever's available to get labor and to get people working in the venues and then from those you move on to the the 403 which is that COVID visa that's going to be disappearing next year but then you move on to the next level which is when you start sponsoring people um, and that's the TSS and the labor agreements we were talking about. Yeah, and I think it's very much sort of, you know, strategically what you want to think about is sort of the groups and what you're trying to target or, or the groups of employees that you're looking for. And so where it's a sort of a strategic position or you think that it's a, a hire who or an employee who you really want to hang on to, then it is a question of sort of mapping that out at the right point because there will be probably a pathway through to at least from a visa perspective to to sort of manage to hang on to that person uh, or to keep that person within the business but it often needs a little bit of strategy even at the recruitment stage so we've had clients in hospitality who are looking for sort of you know to try and 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 recruit very high-end chefs from overseas particular talent uh, and so things like having a clear understanding of what do they want are they do they want to bring their families? Are they intending to stay long term? What's the pathway for them? And having those discussions around that or where you've got a lot of employees that are on student visas or they're on, you know, working holiday maker visas that you already have identified them as a potential longer term hire. It's like, well, what are we going to do here? Will we put them on a training visa first for a while? Is there something that we can move them to when they finish their studies? Will they go on to one of these two year work visas that we can sort of hang on to them for a while without sponsorship? And then knowing at the end of the day, you're probably not going to get away without sponsoring someone at some point. So I think back to the earlier conversation and Kate, you know, do you know anyone who's all Australian? It's more, no, not that. But there are businesses that we know who have tried to avoid sponsoring for TSS visas because of the cost and whatever. And they're tending to now suffer because they have then no way to hang on to the people they really want to hang on to longer term. So it's those strategic decisions that need to be made. 
the rest is kind of the great bulk of you know your your waiters and all the rest of it even your cooks and chefs they're all going to keep coming and transiting through right as working holiday makers but it's it's how do you either attract good ta- use the migration program to attract good talent like very sort of specifically go after it or how do you hang on to those people that you really want to hang on to lawyers after my own heart encouraging us to have conversations with our people and to strategically plan for their careers i love it it's 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 really critical to get everyone on the same page at the beginning particularly a very high-end hire that you're going to spend a lot of money on um because you know if you if they come into it with misaligned understandings of what they're going to get or how quickly they're going to get particularly around permanent residence which leads to a second conversation i think about what sort of policies like when do you when do you offer permanent residency when don't you but but definitely having that clearly mapped out and then being able to have those conversations at the beginning we're often called in for those conversations to just give assurance to to someone who's thinking about coming over about what what the pathway is going to look like this may be a very silly question because it hasn't really formed fully in my head yet but that happens regularly is there any benefit for groups that have multiple venues in relation to sort of working holiday visas where they want to spend six months and then don't want to lose that person but move to another business in their group even though it may be under the one umbrella is that allowed or is that not allowed they may have separate trading abns but be part of a group if if i run a group can i do that or can i not yeah it's a great question it's actually commonly done in hospitality because uh, there is a restriction of six months but there is some policy that's more flexible six months to stay with the same employer and 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 there is some flexibility in policy that if they move venues locations is the way that it's worded they can get another six months even if the abn and the employer is the same and it's actually commonly done yeah okay that'd be good to know because i'm sure it's happening on mass it's just whether or not people underwear that they're skirting the law or if it's like totally allowed On the compliance side of things, which you referenced earlier, you mentioned that there's sort of a heightened focus on it. What does that look like in reality for a business? And what do you do? Like I, I many, many years ago, I had compliance officers come into our business checking visas yeah. and it scares the <laughs> bejesus out of you. Um, what advice would you give to an operator? Because you, you often might find that you've got like a 23-year-old duty manager who's there when they come in and you you, you know, it, like I said, it's very confronting and it's quite scary. Are they yeah. best to be trained to just hand over all the information or not say a word? Like We've actually got someone who's about to have a visit in one hour. Uh, so this is very timely <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> because we've just, we've just finished conversations with that, with that client. Um, so we can talk through like what really happens, right? Like it's happened many times, but it's very topical because it's happening today. So in that case, um, you know, they get a, an email saying, hi, we want to come out from Australian Border Force, which is the immigration police who wear the hats of looking after immigration compliance but also can look at fair work compliance and vice versa. So fair work officers can come in and also ask visa questions. So they kind of wear dual hats. And can I say, when they wear hats, they're very intimidated because they're uniform officers with a badge and a baseball hat. So they're very, very intimidating. The the only thing they don't have is guns, which, you know, it's not... so it can be intimidating, but it, but here they say, oh, hi, we're just coming out for a friendly educational visit. Uh, and then the next sentence says, oh, and by the way, we had a complaint, you know, from someone that we're investigating. So it's like, well, that's not really going to be a friendly visit when it comes out, right? It's not a friendly educational visit. It's an investigation about w- what this complaint is. Uh, and so in that case, they've given notice, but they don't always have to. They could just turn up on, on the doorstep. Um, they tend to do that where they've had very serious allegations and they have real concerns. They, it tends to be like a raid almost. Typically, they'll send something saying, hey, we're coming for a visit. They can also just do written audits. Hi, we're doing an audit on you. We want all this information. In this case, they'll come out, they'll do a visit. They'll want to speak to someone in HR. They'll ask about hours, payroll, salary. They may want to speak to some of the TSS visa holders. And they can pull them aside and they'll say, hey, what are you doing? What occupation you're in? What's your duties? How are you being treated? 
So they, they can kind of, do, they do a bit of a, an investigation to get a sense of what's going on. Uh, they could ask for records and typically uh, employers will say, well, look, I'll, I'll give us some time and we'll send it all to you. Uh, and then the actual audit and investigation can go on for many months and, and the, if there is anything that they're really looking for. And the difficulty is that during that period, all your sponsorship rights are suspended, all your applications are suspended. So there's actually sort of a, it's a, it's a already a, an impost on business just to be kind of investigated. Um, and then there's the potential outcomes, which can be fines or sponsorship suspension or in worst case cancellation. I think, Lillian, we looked it up this morning. There's something like 2,000 sanctioned, sanctioned sponsors who are on the ABF's Australian Border Force website and you can look them up and they list you and they name you and they name your company and your business and sort of, you know, what, what you were busted for. So, so it's a very, it's a, it's a very serious matter and a lot more money has gone into this under the current government along with sort of encouragements to employees to, to complain. So what they've said to employees is, look, if you're on a visa and you make a complaint, there won't be any impact on you kind of thing and you'll have more time and you'll have so so it, it's very much uh, a government focused on on compliance and i think a lot of people uh, in the industry can expect a lot more compliance activity but to lillian's point if you set it up correctly and you have the right systems in place and you're doing the right things those sort of visits uh, will be friendly visits which will just be hi how's it all going thanks very much and we'll see you we may see you again in a few years time it's kind of like the tax office and I can certainly reiterate that, the you know, Lillian talked about how it goes both ways. Border Force can talk about fair work requirements, but equally I've had clients who've had fair work requests, information requests that go back to 2021, 2022 and this year. And as part of those requests, they're also asking for all of the immigration records, all of the all of the vivo checks that have been completed, and they are checking on sponsorship obligations. So it definitely does go hand in hand. And, and can I just add, the ABF Australian Border Force is very, very sophisticated and very good at their job. They know what they're looking for, and they will find it. And they're very clever, and they have very extensive powers under the Migration Act. They can even no, uh, issue notices to produce to software companies that maintain working hours for your staff, for your teams, right? So they can even, and, and the software company has no option but to produce those records. And then they will cross-reference those records with the ATO. They will data match that with how much the person's been paid. So they're very well, well trained and very well equipped to investigate a business. And if there's anything that is not done correctly, they will uncover it. There's no doubt about that. And as Ron said, the, 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 you know, the implications of that are very, very serious. It's, it can be front page and we've seen, we've seen hospitality business front page in the media. It gets published in the name of the company, as Ron mentioned, gets published in the sanction pages, but it's worse than that. It's the fines. It's the inability to sponsor. So you imagine a big employer who for the next six months or two years or three years cannot sponsor anybody or who has 20 applications for permanent residence pending. And all of a sudden, those 20 applications get put on hold and they don't go anywhere and those staff will end up leaving. So the, so the repercussions of getting it wrong are very, very serious if, you, if, if, if a business goes down that avenue. And it's long term because once you're on their list, it's reoccurring. <laughs> you don't... I think the heart rate of every sponsor that's listening to this just went up. Mine did, and I don't <laughs> even sponsor anyone. But what, just so we can maybe bring the heart rates down, what, what, what constitutes as a serious allegation? Like, is it is a mild clerical oversight as it may be no. perceived? So how, how serious does it have to be to, you know, receive the kind of letter your client got? In hospitality, one of the biggest issues is working hours. Time and time again, whenever we go to an audit, they look at their records of hours. That's one of the things that often comes out, um, work, working in the wrong occupation. So, for example, somebody sponsored as a cook and they're front of house, they're on the floor working as the manager. They're the sort of things that come up that can be quite serious. But the ones where we're talking about jail and serious, serious sanctions is people who are exploiting, employers who are exploiting workers. That's what they really are trying so there's a difference between exploitation of workers to to businesses making mistakes that are innocent mistakes that can be rectified or to those that are taking advantage and and you know doing everything you know to doing everything wrong well things that are industry practice or have been traditionally um 
which were maybe misunderstood about how it kind of impacts on awards, for example, and the crossover. So typically things like, oh, well, to sponsor someone, you just need to show that they're going to earn $70,000, right? So so, so $70,000 becomes the salary. Well, back in the day, that rate was much lower. So it was $53,000. And as the award rates crept up, what was typically happening was employers were thinking, well, I've got this person on, on salary at 53000 and it's okay if they're working 60 hours a week and Kate can speak much better to this. But then that's sort of misaligned them with once you apply the award for that person, particularly if you've sponsored them as a chef and, and you know, the rates start as the award rates started going up, then for those sort of hours, uh, even though you're complying with your immigration requirements because you're paying them what you promised in the nomination, which is, you know, $70,000, but if they're working 60 or 65 hours a week and they really should be getting $74,000, uh, that's where that's where they're really focused on that difference. And I think the increase to 70 um Kate, you'd probably be much better placed, but I, I, I feel that that kind of misalignment between the the minimum salary for sponsoring someone and the award is kind of not going to be such a huge problem going forward, I think. I had one more question on that line. In terms of the focus from uh, the immigration police, is it more specifically targeted at people who are approved sponsors or are businesses who may be em- employing people on working holiday visas but not sponsoring people still receiving a bit of attention because they're maybe both in the people listening in our audience listening to this it's it's both like we've come across um i think it was just after covid queensland abf uh, australian border force the brisbane officers had a bit of a campaign to sort of go around to basically every Bris- every business in brisbane and knock on the door and kind of go how are you going what are you doing blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't always sort of with the intent of catching anything, but it could have been partly uh, educational. But also Vivo checking, they know which businesses are registered and doing Vivo checks and and who are not. Um, There's ATO matching of data records now. So salary misalignments and, and things that aren't adding up, that, that that sort of comes out. So there's there's a number of ways that uh, Australian Border Force can become sort of interested in a, in a in a business. It's not always through sponsorship. Sponsorship is just obviously one of those things where they know you do have people there, um, but they're kind of going to assume that every as we started the conversation, they're going to assume that every hospitality business has some sort of visa holder in there. Um, now that we've rightfully scared the pants off everyone and got them nervous about compliance and how onerous and expensive this process is, it is worth talking about, you sort of alluded to it earlier, around what expenses we as employers must pay in the process and what things are allowed to, and perhaps by extension also, appropriate to maybe even fair to would be the right way of saying it in in your experience in the hospitality industry to pass on um to candidates can you tell us a little bit about that yes so there are some obligations on employers that some costs cannot be passed on generally speaking anything relating to the sponsorship and anything relating to the nomination part so sponsorship is that agreement that the business gets in place to be able to sponsor people over the five-year period and then the nomination has to do with the position the type the job that the person will be doing and that includes what we call the training levy so for a temporary visa it it, um it's a levy that's paid per year of the visa and it depends on the turnover of the business so if it's a turnover of more than 10 million it's one thousand eight hundred dollars per year if the business has a turnover of less than 10 million it's one thousand two hundred dollars per year of the visa when it comes to permanent residence there's five thousand dollars for for businesses with more than 10 million or three thousand for less than 10 million so that training levy or anything to do with the nomination costs cannot be passed on but when it comes to the visa itself whether it's permanent residence or temporary residence they, they can be covered by the employee or they can be there can be a clawback agreement so if the employee leaves then the, the business can recover those costs in a lot of industries most employers 
pay everything. Um, they pay the whole amount. And for example, in the tech industry or in some infrastructure construction companies, they pay the whole amount and most of them do not have clawbacks. But in hospitality, that is quite unusual these days. I don't think we've got any client at the moment who will pay the whole amount or who's that, you know, most of them will pass on whatever they legally can or at the very least they would have clawbacks if that individual leaves. So it's, it would be, I would be very surprised to hear anybody in hospitality who's covering the whole amount. Would, would you agree with that, Ron? Yeah, I, I agree. Maybe for the very highest high, maybe for the very most senior highest yeah. as a, you know, a recruitment unusual, strategy, yeah. but yeah, unusual. No, and the flip side is that most hospitality employers will um, support permanent residence applications for those people who are eligible because if they don't support it, those employees will end up going to an employer who will, and that's that's quite probably the industry norm at the moment as well and has been for a number of years as well. And I, I just wanted to say, like, yes, it all sounds scary and costly and terrible. We're not trying to make it that way because... We, we don't make out of any money out of people not sponsoring um, and we certainly don't make much money out of compliance. So it's not, we're not here to sort of um, belt the, you know, the, the compliance sort of, uh, you know, beat the compliance drum um, to scare people because the opposite is true. If you're doing the right thing, you're kind of fine. And, and we've had so many people that are fine. We've got hundreds of sponsors who are doing this every day of the week. Uh, and the reality is given the market, employers just need to do it and uh, you know I've, I've, as i said i've been doing this 25 years and governments and compliance focus and everything it comes and goes and comes and goes but the the, the big thing that never changes is australia needs people it needs talent it will continue to need people and talent is never going to end uh, and so government knows it needs to encourage that it needs to have programs that encourage that which it's trying to do it's just that, you know, with a Labor government, it is what it is, which is they also want, you know, there's union pressure to balance. Um, and, and so these things tend to fluctuate, you know, like this. Uh, but if, if you just look at the underlying kind of like need for talent and the, you know, the, the, the visa processes for it, they've really never changed. In fact, right now, these changes that they just introduced, Lily and I were joking the other day, it's like, Back to 2017, the 457 visa that everybody said was so terrible. And then I was thinking, PTSD. well, it's actually, it's actually back to 1996. I can remember a change that, that was kind of similar. So, so it just goes in the big cycle of things. And I think for most employers, if you're sensible about it and you take the right attitude to it, uh, and this is the same for visa holders, like, you know, you employing overseas talent is, a you know needed but b can be hugely beneficial to to your business and so many of the employees we work with just have really good experiences with 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 hiring talent in from overseas what it does for the diversity of their business and you know and that so you know on the great scheme of things compliance is just one of those things you need to deal with it's no different to your license for i'm sure it's like you know having ha having the liquor licensing board coming around to, to check that you've got x number of patrons and you're not serving to people under 17 and yes if you're serving to 15 year olds and they're all getting drunk then no doubt you're going to be in trouble right and it's a bit the same with this it's just part of doing business in this industry and it's just having the right attitude to it and, and dealing with it, and it's fine. And the right lawyers. And the right lawyers don't, yeah, it helps. Well, you need the right lawyers at the beginning to set it up, then you don't need the right lawyers at the end when it gets very expensive. This is uh, perhaps a question for Kate, but I'm sure you would have insight on it as well. But I think this, the, the expense has come up a couple of times, and I think the concern around expense coming from someone who's you know, had to had not had to or has sponsored people in the past is the concern that they will just leave and and be taken by another business and you don't get the you know the the attraction of sponsoring is it hopefully get someone who's attached to your business for a longer period of time which makes it worthwhile. Again, this is another unformed question in my head, but um, Kate, do you see any businesses that maybe tackle the retention topic um, differently where? in relation to how they treat people that they are sponsoring? You know, there are different approaches that you can take to make sure that your investment into their sponsorship is protected or is it kind of inconsequential and you just, you know, the approaches are the same for people who are not sponsored? I think it 
is quite similar to the non-immigration employment experience. If you do all of the things that make you a good employer that people want to work for, you will retain your talent who are Australian, New Zealand citizens or permanent residents, and you will retain your immigration talent. I think Lillian sort of touched on it before, Definitely, in my experience, one of the things that visa holders, whether they're working holiday visas, student visas or TSS, are looking for is a pathway to PR, like almost universally. And whether they end up taking that pathway to PR or not is kind of neither here nor there. They want to know that the option is there. So if you are one of those businesses that says it's a yes until we, it's a no, it's a, it's a yes and then we explore that you're the right person for that, um, for the ability to go for PR, then I think you are a big leg up on being able to retain anyone on a visa at any level. And then I also think uh, there is possibly an advantage for those operators that have multiple sites and multiple types of service because similarly to the employment experience where that allows you to, for someone to go, well, I don't kind of sick of working in this pub and I wouldn't mind trying something a bit fine dining or I'm kind of sick of working in this venue that's open really late at night and I wouldn't mind working somewhere where I could start early in the morning. The ability to retain talent across different styles and offerings and even locations can definitely be a draw card and I certainly see clients who've got multi-state locations, particularly with those working holiday visas, to be able to say, well, if you want to experience the country of Australia, then we can help you to do that. I think that is a, another big draw card in trying to retain talent, just generally. But I think the rules are pretty much the same. I agree with um, Lillian and Ron that most operators in hospitality are passing on costs or definitely clawing back and making people agree to that. So if you're doing that, I don't think you're any different to the employer down the road that they're going to walk to if it doesn't work out with you. I'm going to ask one more question that I'm going to edit out if the answer is as obvious as I think it is. Similar to the working holiday visa, is there any opportunity for a business that ha may have a master sponsorship entitlement but owns 20 different venues to do to transfer a visa and start a new one between their venues, not a working holiday, but like a um, TSS? Like a sponsored worker. Yeah, so the rule is that if you sponsor, so you, one of the businesses or more will hold the sponsorship, one of the companies, and then it depends a bit on your structure, right? So if each venue is owned by a different company, as long as those companies are related entities, so, you know, they've got common directors or their shares in each other, you can move people around amongst those venues it only becomes an issue um, if you're running a structure which is such that you're trying to keep everything unrelated to each other a and then you may need separate sponsorships for each sort of place but as a general rule that's very rare right so as a general rule um, you can move people you can move people around without having to incur costs usually within the same group yeah so even 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 if the businesses within a group are un, and not the same, so you could have a restaurant. That restaurant also has a florist or hairdressing talent right within the business portfolio. You could use this sponsorship of the restaurant to sponsor a, a hairdresser and the hairdressing talent, as long as the entities are legally associated under the Corporations Act, and it's commonly done. So there, there's some costs. So we talked a lot about how much money it costs and how much costs incur. If you do it properly, you can also save costs by using the one sponsorship license instead of having different licenses across different venues or different entities. I think that's probably like a, a really good outcome and maybe something that we can pull together some information on post uh, podcasts just in terms of creating that pathway because it may be something that's not necessarily top of mind for a lot of businesses to get someone from their initial sponsorship period through to permanent residency because it sounds like it's well thought out and understood by you but maybe not necessarily everyone else and that will improve the retention side of things and then mitigate the concerns around costs um which people experience so nice the only other thing i thought of was, was if there's any insight on future trends as to where you see things are going to go in terms of um immigration but you you have referenced it a couple of times but in, t in 25 years we'll have another conversation and, and it's probably going to be exactly the same <laughs> 
<laughs> just the names of the visas will have changed. But basically, you know, the fundamentals are what they are, which is there's not enough people and, and we need them. So that government will create a place for it, right? Um, and, and there's only so many levers they can pull. And in the end, um, you know, they, they, they employers need the ability to be able to keep the people they need. And, and so different governments will play around with it differently, but, but the overarching trend will be that um, it continues, right? And, and you'll always be able to, pretty much now you can get and keep the people you need uh, if you just have a, a good plan for it. Do you see this, maybe unrelated, but do you see any um, commensurate level of government kind of investment or time spent on actually trying to get more domestic workers into the hospitality industry, or is that not necessarily in your purview? Great question, Luke. Do we have a, yeah. do we have another R for another where, podcast? Where does your training levy go? Is the is yeah. the question to that? That's where. Right? That's the question yeah. I would be asking. Where is my five thousand dollars per PR? My three thousand two hundred dollars per TSS. Where where is that going to? And I'd encourage the industry, industry and local employers to go to their members and for industry to go to government and say. It's okay. We're paying this money. We get that we have to pay this money. Well, we don't, but we're paying it. Where is it going? Because I'm not getting any extra applicants through my door that are coming out of TAFEs or, or colleges or wherever that are that are sort of like wanting to be in the hospitality industry or you know whatever. So and are properly trained. So I think Kate, I don't know what you feel, but I, <laughs> that's the question for me. It's like I mean, that the is the goes? intention. <laughs> that is the intention of the the whole setup of the training levy is to to tax um, businesses on those um, immigration applications and to take that fund and fund um, people in Australia to get those skills that are at the moment being filled by temporary workers. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I was fairly highly critical about at the introduction of the training level was the lag in if we start investing in apprentice cooks, apprentice chefs, apprentice, you know, Cert 3 or Diploma in Hospitality Operations today, the payoff will still be some years down the track. And, I mean, certainly I can speak for my clients that we're not seeing that payoff yet and we are still years down the track. Yeah, the, the levy was introduced in 2017. We have not yet met one employer who has benefited directly or indirectly from that levy. How would they directly benefit? Uh, is there a program that's been set up on the back of the levy that they would see someone coming from, or is it just not seeing any tangible outcomes as a result of the levy being implemented? Before the levy, employers who wanted to sponsor people had to show that they spend at least 1% of their payroll in training. So they would show that by showing receipts of what training programs they had or paying for tape or paying for whatever, you know. So it was about what the employer had spent. Now the employer pays for it but has no has no benefit at all. Control. So it's like there has no control. They don't get a, a they don't get any funding or anything to train their own staff. So it's money that they pay and that they do not see again and that the employees have no benefit from it. So the employees are not receiving anything in return. And we, it will be interesting to see how many millions have gone to Treasury on that levy because nobody really knows where it's going. All right. It's a good question and you just opened a can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save it for a part two. Yeah, part two. Okay, so the final five questions that every back of house podcast guest gets asked. Um, let's start with number one, your favourite artist or album. I recently came across uh, a thing called Tiny Desk Concerts, and I don't know whether any of you have listened to it. I'm sure some people out there have. So it's neither an artist nor an album. But it's, uh, I, I really encourage people to have a look at it. You'll find on YouTube, they're called Tiny Desk Concerts. There's about 800 of them. Uh, and so, anyway, I'll say no more. Have a listen. They're great. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Um, Favourite book or podcast that you recommend? Well, I, I listened to This American Life because I lived in New York for a while and, 
and married to an American. So it keeps me, that's my little bit of sort of like Americana. So I, that's my favourite podcast. I listen to The Daily from The New York Times. That's my daily. Favourite drink right now? Negroni. <laughs> Well, I've just I've just come back from Miami, and it's so it's a lychee martini, which is the sort of going thing over there. So. <laughs> Favorite venue? It's a steak in my kitchen, and you're both welcome to come. But that's my that's my favorite Thanks, venue. Ron. <laughs> no, I'm not going to go for steak. I'm going to I'm going to say that I think we're too spoiled for choice in Australia, particularly in Sydney where we are. Um, I'm going to have to go for a little pinches bar in San Sebastian, which is where I'm from. <laughs> No, I love that. Um, biggest inspiration to you both? My dad's my biggest inspiration. Why is that, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, he just ate the way he's, like, lived his life and, you know, he's sort of, um, he's just, he's a, he's a sort of just got this eternal optimism about everything and it's just a great approach to life. So I'd, I'd like to be like that. <laughs> me too. Me too. Lillian, biggest inspiration? Yeah, I'm going to be a bit cheesy. I'm going to go for my husband because he's very kind and gentle and a nice person, but he's also got a brilliant, brilliant mind and he's an incredible businessman. Lovely. Yeah, the two nicest answers we've ever had on this podcast. I think so, yeah. Kate included. <laughs> I don't think you called out Definitely. your husband, did you? Or your dad? No. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was um, a pleasure speaking to you, and I'm sure there are people listening who have taken a lot away from your information. So, um, yeah, really appreciate it. We'll make sure we put your contact details in the podcast notes as well in case anyone wants to reach out and get some yeah, further advice or intel. So, yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank thanks you. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Thank you, team. Thank you.